Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast, episode number 12. My name is Brooke McCallery and uh, I'm your, your host and the founder of the podcast, as well as slowyourhome.com, a website that talks about slow and simple living and uh, yeah, ways that you can integrate it into your life. But today I am joined by Ben. Like always, I'm here. And today's episode, you interviewed someone a little bit different coming to the slow um, movement, if you like, from a academic point of view, which I found really, really interesting. Um, you interviewed Donnie McClurkin. I did. McClurkin. McClurkin. Yes. I did. No, I, inter- I interviewed Donnie McClurkin. And it was uh, Donnie now heads up an organization called the Post Growth Institute which you can find at postgrowth.org. But um, to be honest, I was a little bit intimidated when I went into the interview with him because he's uh, he's got a, a really impressive CV and academic history of economic studies. But specifically, he looks at what happens when the current cycle of economic growth and manufacture stops and what happens when we're in when we enter the, the post-growth economy and because that's something honestly that I've always come across or come up against when I when I talk to people about simplifying and you know minimalism but minimizing the amount of stuff we buy people will say but if everybody tomorrow adopted minimalism the economies of the western world and actually most of the world will crumble because they're based on consumption and that's something I've always I, I never have an answer to it you know what what can I say? I'm not an economics yeah. professor. Um, and it was really interesting to dig into some of that with Donnie because he has some interesting ideas about what that will look like, but also what we can do to start shifting things into the post-growth economy now. Yeah, it was it was a really good talk. And it is um, that shift, isn't it? It's the gradual shift because if we did it all at once – he actually acknowledges, acknowledges it, doesn't he? He says um, it wouldn't work. Um, if we stop the production, everything will fall apart, which it would when you think about it logically. But, yeah, he gives some idea about how we can gradually get to that stage, what we can do now, and then um, talks about his work, and he's got a lot of it. Um, he talks about the enriched list. He, he, t- he talks about the day. What's the sl- uh, Free money day. Free money day. It's ba- basically they they encourage people to give away money uh, on this one particular day. Yeah, it's it's really interesting the reason behind it. The let it rain day. Yeah, yeah it depends who you are. <laughs> so very interesting uh, podcast. So that's uh, coming up. But did you want to mention uh, the sponsor for today's podcast? Uh, so today's podcast is brought to you by Audible dot com. Uh, which is where you can can access over 150,000 audiobooks and you can listen to them on your iPhone, your Android, your Kindle, any other device that you may have. Uh, You can sign up to Audible today and if you do, you'll get a 30-day trial of the Audible service as well as a free audiobook of your choice. Uh, You just need to visit audibletrial.com slash slow. S L O W, and uh, yeah, if you if you do that and you sign up through that link, you'll get your your thirty day free trial and a free audiobook. I uh, I think back in episode eleven, I went through a list of some of my favourite books of the past uh, couple of years, and one of them was Thrive by Ariana Huffington. 
you can actually get the audiobook version of that uh, on Audible. So that's something that I would definitely recommend you check out. So if you would like to grab a free copy of the Thrive audiobook or any other book of your choice for that matter, you can uh, do that by heading to audibletrial.com slash slow. Um, just to before we get on to the show, just to reiterate, uh, all the show notes today's to do to today's um, podcast will be available at slowyourhome.com forward slash twelve. That's slowyourhome.com forward slash twelve. And uh, if you wanted to check out some more from Donnie as well, uh, you can find everything that you need to know about him as well as his social media channels by heading to postgrowth.org. Enjoy the show. Well, hello, Donnie. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Brooke. How are you? I'm really well. Uh, thank you for talking to me this morning. Well, it's, uh, it's certainly early for you and, and midday for me here in Oregon. Oregon sounds like a beautiful part of the world, actually. It's stunning. I live uh, in a, a town that's actually dedicated itself to buying local, which is really nice um, in terms of the theme of what we'll discuss today. But it's also nestled in this incredible valley where I'm about three minutes walk from some amazing hikes on the Pacific Crest Trail and just beautiful weather and a really great place to be working on the kinds of things I'm working on. It sounds amazing. It sounds like such a... Is it a large community or...? There are about 20,000 people living here and about 6,000 of those... Oh, sorry, maybe two or 3,000 of those are from the university based at the campus. It's a small college town here, but it's only about 10 miles from a bigger city with 200,000 people in it called Medford. Right, okay. Sounds perfect. And you, I mean, you're obviously uh, Australian originally. How long have you been there for? <laughs> I've been here for almost two years. Okay. Oh, beautiful. Um, now, we'll dive into it. Can you tell me and uh, listeners a bit about yourself and what it is that you do uh, with your work? So, sure. So I'm, I'm passionate about all things not-for-profit. I have been involved working with organisations in Australia um, and then having set up an organisation that supported uh, the startup process for not-for-profit initiatives in Australia. And so I worked in eye healthcare, I worked with Sydney's Homeless, um, I worked as a telephone counsellor, I worked with Rotary before setting up my organisation called Project Australia. And then I, I spent the last 10 years essentially learning everything I can about not-for-profit startup and helping over 300 organizations in that process of, of everything from incorporating through to how to actually run effective board meetings and processes, streamlining activities to essentially create enterprises within non not-for-profit structures. So not-for-profit organizations with businesses that sit underneath them to ensure their sustainability. And that led me, as well as my PhD work looking at global equality, that led me to establish another organization, which is an economics institute, about five years ago. And just today, uh, literally five minutes before our interview, I got noticed that we've just been become a 501c3, so a registered charitable organization in the US So after five years, which is great. And we look at economics in terms of beyond growth, 
our economic systems, whether they've been socialist or capitalist, have throughout history in the last few hundred years focused on growing, ever expanding. And we know that that's hitting limits now and has been hitting limits for some time, in fact. And so we are looking at, <clears throat> excuse me, the economic alternative. What, what would a post-growth economy look like, an economy that goes beyond ever expanding? And that's where my interests in not-for-profit organizations really nicely intersect as we, our institute runs fun events like Free Money Day where people hand out their own money to complete strangers and ask them to pass half on and engage with money in new ways. We, we run creative activities like the Enrich List, which is the equivalent or the, the farcical take on the Forbes Rich List where we put up the most enriching people, um, people doing the most enriching work that we've found. And then we come back to this economic modeling and are really putting, working hard at the moment to put out a new economic model beyond capitalism that could actually ensure livelihoods as well as the outcomes that we so desire in terms of our climate and also in terms of social equality. Um, so going back to your idea of, of post-growth, uh, and I'll go, I'll, I'll go back to Free Money Day as well because I'm really interested in talking about that a little bit. But uh, today's, you know, in today's world, a successful life is typically defined um, by having enough money or, you know, forever increasing amounts of money and stuff and status. But so in the post-growth economy, what, what do you think a successful life would look like? My guess is that it's exactly what most of your listeners have already come to experience themselves. A successful life is one in which everyone's needs are met without... Um, restricting the capacity of each other's needs to be met. And that essentially comes down to community, to caring, to sharing, to valuing the informal economy, uh, valuing the things that we exchange for free and barter uh, and trade with each other, which for so long, I mean, fem feminist economists have, have done a very good job at pointing this out, at how the patriarchal system that has underlied so much of the oppression of the 20th and now 21st century has done such a, a great job at, at quashing anything that really is to do with caring and the informal economy. I mean, caregiving, for example, the fact that that is not included in the way that we measure a, an economy's wealth, so to speak, mm -hmm. um, you know, on that simplistic GDP measure, even the person, Kuznets, who was behind the GDP creation, pointed out that limitation at the very beginning. Yet, we haven't taken that into account in terms of working out what makes a good life, what makes a good economy. We're so frightened, it seems, especially um, senior bureaucrats and academics and economists are so frightened to question the God of growth <clears throat> and to ask what would happen because, and I think justifiably so, because so little work has been done on viable alternatives such that people feel, well, anything that doesn't grow basically collapses. Mm -hmm. And certainly in light of the alternatives that have been put forward, I, I would agree that that fear is justified. What I think is opening up now that's more exciting is alternatives uh, are starting to emerge that actually look towards a market economy that could function without a growth imperative. And to come back to your question, what really matters? What does a post-growth society look like? It's an economy where needs are actually addressed, where we don't have so much waste in the system as we do now. You know, things from apples 
uh, traveling all the way from the UK to China just to be polished, through to massive bureaucracies in Western democracies uh, to deliver healthcare and other social services that really have so much fat built into them that the those on the political right who critique the size of government have a good point, have a, a justification for what they say because so much bloating has happened. So a post-growth economy is one that functions, truly functions for everyone and services needs and harnesses what should have come from some of our, our uh, progress in so many fields rather than leaving someone like me going, how come if, if Australia, for example, was the wealthiest country per capita at the start of the 20th century. How come by the end of the 20th century there was still homelessness on the scale there was? Mm. How come there was still massive obesity? How come there were all these social challenges that Indigenous life expectancy was so much lower? That, to me, is the driver for a post-growth economy and essentially gives an indication of where we would need to go. It's an economy where those things get worked out. So what I, I mean, what I hear you say is we really need uh, what, what you're aiming for and what you're working towards bringing awareness to is a need to simplify uh, across, you know, government, across corporations, across, uh, you know, society. Is that something that is part of the post-growth society to, to simplify and take out all of the unnecessary steps and the unnecessary, you know, waste, all that, all of that? Absolutely, we need to simplify. The challenge there is to not think that that means that it's going to be simple. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the, the complexities that we face, we found, in fact, the biggest complexities that get faced in moving towards a more simple economy and, and economics of enough are often the deeply seated narratives that restrict our capacity to usher in new thinking. So, for example, wherever we go around the world, we find that the law around not-for-profit organizations is relatively similar. It means a certain thing around the inability to privatize wealth through an organizational structure. So if you set up an organization, there's no equity holders in that organization itself. If the company makes, or the organization, if it's a charity, makes profits, those go back into the organization itself. Now, wherever we go around the world, in addition to the legal similarities that we discover, we also discover that there's a common hermeneutics, a common thing that comes to mind or things that come to mind when we use words like not-for-profit. Typically, people associate not-for-profit with charities, bureaucracy, donations, purpose, social mission, these sorts of things. Volunteering as well is another key word that comes up. And typically, when we ask people about profit, they also consider that usually in a negative, uh, in a pejorative way, in a, with negative connotations, greed, um, making money at the expense of others, etc. Mm-hmm. Those two terms both have the power for very different meanings that we are seeing in the world. To start with not-for-profit, almost 50% of the world's not-for-profit income in terms of all the organizations that exist, the millions of them that exist, across 26 to 30 different countries that have been surveyed, almost 50% of that income now is self-generated through business activities. So whereas in the 70s, 80s, 90s, not-for-profit organizations did um, rely on charity and grants and the like in order to function, 
there's been a dramatic shift in the last 15 to 20 years towards business models being put underneath those not-for-profit organizations. And for those who are familiar in the US, you've got Goodwill in Australia, St. Vincent de Paul, who I used to work with, that run the charity shops, for example. It's, it's a, it's a well-used example of an organization that does its social purpose, fulfills its social purpose by funding itself through business activities. That is quite a different take on not-for-profit activities that essentially coming back to that complexity of moving through things is, some, is, diffi- is more difficult for some people than others to understand the impact that has on imagining a more simple economy. Similarly with profit, if you think of profit in a not-for-profit organization, it's actually put to good use. It's put back into, it's gener- generatively restored into the economy. In the for-profit system, which, we, which is the pervasive system we live in, and with companies that are focused primarily on maximizing profit, profit is extracted from Commonwealth into the back pockets of a select few shareholders. So the word profit and the words not-for-profit, the complexity of moving towards a, sim- a more simple economy often lies with reimagining and reconnecting with the realities associated with those words and understanding, for example, that profit can be very generative if it's done within a not-for-profit framework. And perhaps we'll talk about this a little more as we go on, but essentially we see a a not-for-profit economy emerging that really does bring us back to the simplest of things that matters, and those are two things. Firstly, that purpose be put at the heart of all business as its primary function to fulfill social needs, And secondarily, that it acts as a business in the sense that it can sustain livelihoods, which are needed still, uh, I imagine, are going to be needed for the remainder of this century as we continue a market-based economy. And then something that I often, uh, I I, I feel really heartened when I talk to you about about this and listen to you, because when I, I talk to people about minimalism and buying less, wanting less, needing less, uh, you know, reusing, sharing, that kind of thing. One of the the major uh, things that people push back against is the idea that if we all just stopped buying stuff, you know, if we only bought what we absolutely needed, uh, the economy would collapse. So when I I hear you talking about this, it's it's not necessarily going back to a time where, um, you know, where we have little uh, or we have not enough, but it's more about uh, choosing to engage with uh, companies and organisations that do good with you know what, with what, with their work and the people that they work with and the you know the the profits that they put back either into the community or into the company. So there's a, actually an opportunity to engage the two together and you know create a, a more positive influence on the economy rather than my you know very simplistic fear that things will just collapse if people stop needing and wanting right i think it's important to see these in time frames essentially if people did all shift tomorrow to buying less if if buy nothing day um later in the year was a day that basically saw such mass movement that people just did stop buying the economy would collapse Mm. there would be riots there would be mass despair that emerged from that the fact is, though, that what you're proposing uh, in engaging with people is not that. You're proposing that people wean themselves off the system as the system itself evolves. 
And we are arguing that that's an evolution towards an economy that can work for us all. Because it's not about weaning yourself off a system uh, that doesn't work in order to do your bit. That, that's part of it, but that's not the main bit. The main part of it is that in weaning yourself off, to, off a system, you actually open yourself to being part of the response, as you're saying there, in terms of conscious consideration for where are you putting your money. And also, what happens when we actually extract ourselves from the economy in terms of the formal economy? We end up generally being able to give more. The people I know who have downsized uh, their lives and and got off the um, keeping up with the Joneses treadmill then become the people who are able to volunteer more often. They get involved in community activities. They barter more. They're able to be better parents, better family members, better friends. What part of a great economy doesn't that fit into? For mine, that's the essence of an economy that's working. So I think everyone who, who's listening that is doing their part in terms of downsizing and simplifying their life, you're doing amazing things. It's so important. It helps feed the work of, of people at our institute in terms of dr- cr- driving the creation of an economic alternative, knowing that people are waiting for it, are looking forward to engaging with a, an economy where they know they're not compromised. They can go out and purchase things in that economy and know that that is overall contributing to our common wealth. Mm. I know because I often feel like, uh, at least initially with me, the idea behind simplifying and, and slowing down and you know getting more intentional was very much self-interested. You know, my life was hectic and crazy and, and really pressured and overwhelming. So when I stepped back from that, it just felt like something that I was doing for me and my family. And the impact was enormous. But it's it's really interesting to see that more from the 10,000-foot kind of view and seeing the the wider impact that slowing down and living a simpler life and having fewer needs actually has on the on the wider, you know, economic side of things and society. It's yeah, it's it, I think increasingly we're going to see that these things are all um, connected. Right. And I think it's totally okay that the motivation some people have in moving towards a simpler life is self-driven. Because I think that on a deeper level, there's something happening here that we haven't maybe put our finger off on that often, which is that chaos, from my experience, other than general entropy in physics, chaos in terms of society reaches a point where it bends back towards connection and simplicity. There comes a, I mean, look at what's happening with mental illness around the world. It's been on the rise for a long time now, but I think that arc will bend at some point where it will hit a breaking point and people will say, enough, I can't deal with this insanity myself, my family, etc. I mean, obviously, insanity is maybe not the most sensitive of words there, but but essentially the the conditions that that it it creates to have so much stress in our lives ultimately hit a point where i think people will say i can't deal with this anymore so i think building on the the work of people like ted trainer out of sydney and the simplicity institute in melbourne there's an infrastructure that is increasingly growing such that it's okay that people are reaching points where they say enough I can't deal with this complexity that this system has created and I want a simpler life. And then they fall back on 
the kinds of things that this podcast that you have is creating where people have communities of of experience around simplicity and encourage people to grow in that way and essentially realize that they're part of something bigger that even if it was driven by self self um, selfish means perhaps selfish purpose at the beginning can very quickly be discovered as as maybe you did Brooke that it's part of something bigger and something very important and positive. Mm. Oh, absolutely. You know, the, I think the effects are going to be far-reaching. The more that people engage with the ideas behind simplicity and uh, slow living, it's just going to, um, yeah, we're going to see more and more of a, a positive impact, I think. Um, shifting gears a little bit, are you somebody uh, in your day-to-day personal home life, do you identify with being a minimalist or a simplicity kind of advocate Absolutely. I, I have very few possessions. I have a very low income, which uh, is something that I have consciously chosen. Mm-hmm. Something that I may change in the next few years um, if, I, if I continue in the direction of having a family. But essentially, I, I realized a while back that there was a trade-off that I was willing to make in terms of income and stress um, and income and expectations and the like. So I have my creative freedom largely because I don't work for others and I run an institute um, that I'm accountable to a board, but essentially I'm not working underneath uh, an, uh, an organizational structure like within the university, etc. And so I, I spent a few years, you, your listeners might be interested in this, I, about six years ago, I managed to get through everything on my to-do list, like everything. And I mean, from sorting every single photo to having spoken to every single person that I promised I would uh, myself I wanted to connect with before I died and every single thing because I was obsessed uh, with efficiency and streamlining my life in a way that was going to enable me to get things done that I wanted. I wouldn't, there was probably an aspect, a shadow aspect of uh, compulsivity or, or the like associated with that. But the interesting thing that came out of it was that I, Having managed to get everything done, it lasted for eleven minutes, and then, <laughs> and then of course, and then of course, um, it mushroomed back out. And so now I just it, I have total relaxation about my to do list and the way that it it swarms and then um, contracts and then swarms again. I think the 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 thing that I really did appreciate about that period that I still appreciate is I've managed to simplify my communications in a way that works for me. So I have little techniques like in my inbox where I will go through each morning and I will, I I use Gmail, which I find very useful, especially the labs um, and what they offer uh, in terms of add-ons for my email, canned responses and things like that. And so I'll go through my email and I'll quickly click reply on any that I know I need to make a reply for and I'll put any letter in the the box in the reply section and I'll click archive and it will take it off my front page and put it over into my drafts and that's a very quick way for me to be able to assess at any point what my workload is in terms of inbox Mm -hmm. and it makes communication for me a lot less of a chore um, which it would be if I saw 300, 400, 5,000 emails in my inbox. I never have more than 30 emails in my inbox and I'm getting 100 plus every day and so I, it allows me to, the simplifying that I've brought into that process as well as some of the automating has allowed me to 
to relax on that front and give me more time to get out and enjoy the beautiful outdoors here in Oregon. So it's uh, yeah, just a case of systematizing and organizing, but not for the sake of being of having a system or being organized. It's <laughs> so that you right. can actually go and live life. Absolutely, yeah. and and I also there's there's something that I think others will resonate with. And that is, I don't get outdoors and do the things that I want to do as much as I would like, but that's not for want of it. That's because I'm trying to drive a global movement around post-growth economics. And there's a commitment that's required there that means that I, I probably end up doing 70, 80 hours of work per week. And that's not ideal for me. That's just what I'm called to do. But I manage somehow still to have a simplicity in those 80 hours that allows me to just I can walk away from my online devices for five days and I'm not phased by it. And I know others who are working the same amount of hours in a week can't do that. And so I guess I wanted to just share that with your listeners in case there are people out there who are feeling like I'm suggesting that it's, it's only uh, what it does is only create plenty of time in my schedule. And that's not true. I have to work hard to create that time and to continue pushing myself to take a break and go out and do things. But it's geared me to be in a position to be able to do that should I want to. I think, again, that just goes back to the idea of creating those things intentionally and also uh, you know, spending your time intentionally because it would be very easy and I think most of us have fallen into the trap at least once uh, of remaining connected and remaining hectic and busy and you know, operating up at you know, full 100% kind of capacity all the time because it's sometimes uh, easier to, to keep doing that rather than step back and say, well, what can I do to, to simplify right. this? What can I do to slow this down? Right. And there's one other thing I, I'd like to share about how I keep my life simple, and that is I've never owned property. And I found that maybe I will one day, maybe I'll look at a community land trust model, like a not-for-profit equivalent of, of land ownership, but essentially, I saw so many of my friends who got into mortgages, uh, particularly in Australia, at a very young age. And I just, I feel for them in terms of the stress I've seen that bring into their lives. Now, I found an even better medium than paying rent, which itself can bring in stress. Uh, although, of course, you, you, what you trade off with, with paying rent is the relaxation of not having to worry too much about getting things fixed on a property. But what, I've, what I'm doing recently is I'm now managing a property um, for others through my organization. And so I get free rent um, as well as not having to be the owner of the property whilst also um, learning more about, about that process of property management. But I find that taking that rental, that regular rental payment or mortgage payment off the books for me is incredibly relaxing. It basically takes so much stress and I'm, I'm a big fan of the gift economy and, and barter economy in that sense of reducing. I have very few overheads. Um, if I were living in Australia, I'd have even less because I wouldn't have to pay health insurance, which is mandated here in the US. But beyond that, I, I have very few overheads um, at the moment. Uh, my internet is one of them. My, um, my utilities are covered by the, the place where I live and the, my phone uh, my own cell phone is the only other regular thing in addition to healthcare, and that makes life very easy. Right, yeah, I can imagine. Um, I, you, you spoke, you've spoken about sharing and bartering uh, a couple of times. I just want to dive into that a little bit. So the idea 
behind uh, collaborative consumption, I first came across, I think it's Rachel Botsman. Rachel Botsman. Yes, mm-hmm. her TED Talk. Uh, and it really hit home to me because, she, you know, she just had this really wonderful way of delivering what could potentially sound like either a complicated idea or a very, you know, idealistic idea that, that you know, I could, the sceptic in me would say, oh, that'll never happen. She had a really interesting and, uh, you know, encouraging and open way of talking about collaborative consumption particularly she was talking about um you know electric drills for example and she basically said that we don't need the drill we need the hole so is that kind of the the basis of the idea of collaborative consumption is that something that you are a big believer in yes and no um there's been a, a big schism essentially in the collaborative consumption movement in the last year or so that comes to the heart of things i'm interested in and that is collaborative consumption from a very for-profit market-driven perspective, a la Uber um, right, and yeah. Airbnb and that sort of style, where essentially the, the outcomes on a public level are good in terms of people sharing more, but the questions we ask at our institute are what's happening with the profits that are being made. And then you compare that <clears throat> with something like the local exchange trading scheme, which exists around the world and particularly is particularly strong in Australia, where it's a not-for-profit entity such that no one is, is financially benefiting. If that takes off even more than it does, if people are trading things in Sydney or, or up in the Central Coast or, or wherever through that scheme and they, they double the amount that they're trading in a year, there's no one sitting behind that, no Wizard of Oz who's basically pocketing a whole lot of money from that, such as the case with Airbnb or, or Uber. So I think what Rachel Botsman did an incredible job of was bringing it into ev- everyday experience, the kinds of things that we should be sharing that just don't make sense, like the drill and the eight minutes that it gets used on average uh, in its lifetime. And What she also did was she was able to bring these ideas into the market economy, which is great. What happens, though, is anytime we bring things into a market economy perspective without some kind of delineating structure between what would be a good form versus a not-so-good form of that happening within a market economy, we run the risk of co-option. And I think that's what's happened is part of the collaborative consumption movement has just been mainstreamed into the existing structures within corporate capitalism that essentially are what create the need for the sharing economy in the first place. Mm. So I think it's about being conscious around new ideas and saying, what are the ones that stick true to the essence that address the challenge we were having in the first place, which is we need a whole. But why do we need a whole? We need a whole in a wall, like in, in a wall or anything um, more than we need the drill because we don't have communities where people are able to get that hole drilled for them by other people at a price that they can afford. That's the real reason that sits underneath this because 75 people control as much wealth as the other half of the world's population. Mm. That inequity means that the drill and the hole don't ever appear in most people's lives. So the whole premise of collaborative consumption needs to be seen in that light of why aren't community needs being addressed in the first place? It's because we have an economy that extracts wealth, creates inequity, and ensures that social needs could never be met 
in a way that would actually lead to a fully flourishing society. Community is something that in almost every interview I've, uh, I've, I've had since the podcast began, community is something that, that comes up time and time again. And both the, the benefits of a strong community and engaging with our, our community and the, the impact of the death of community, both of those things have come up time and time again. And I just I can't help but feel that, that that is where the answer lies. You know, in terms of collaborative consumption, I've, I wrote years ago about you know, my dream of a, a community-run co-op where things like power drills live and people come in together and they share and... Uh, you know, you use what you need and you return it and everybody benefits. And um, the the response to that so often is scepticism because people think, well, you know, someone will steal it. Someone will not return it. Someone will break it. And I think that kind of response speaks to the, you know, the the weakened community that we currently are experiencing. And I'd just really love to see people get back out and connect and engage with each other. And I think that that's where a lot of a lot of change will stem from. Absolutely. And I think what helps in the journey to understanding how to unlock that and unleash that is to understand how pervasive the individualism has been as a narrative in the last 30 years. I mean, I I do a lot of work with communities where we look at appreciative inquiry and asset-based community development. And for those of you listeners not Uh, familiar with those things, they're worth checking out as terms. And what we realize through those processes of running activities where we reframe conversations and questions in engaging with not-for-profit projects and communities is that so much of everything we see around us, media, advertising, um, literature, talks, uh, all sorts of things, start with what's wrong. It's very pervasive. And that's, that's been a destructive force on community building because when you get bombarded with what's wrong, it's natural that we go from in that fear space towards protecting ourselves. The second aspect of this that I find fascinating, it was just pointed out to me recently at an event, and is, is detailed in a book called Uncivil Liberties, Deconstructing Libertarianism, is that if you think of all the superheroes in the US, Spider-Man, Superman, even the John Wayne-style heroes, What's one thing that binds them, even the females um, in, in these processes, what's one thing that binds them? They're all solo acts mm. it, in the sense that they're not rooted in community. They always ride off into the, the, the West. They never are in relationship, permanent relationship with someone. They're not married. They're not uh, grounded in community. And it says a lot, actually, about the American dream, um, other, other situations around the world as well, although it's very strong, particularly out of the US, about individualism and what happened with neoliberalism and, and Reagan and Thatcher and all sorts of things that they pushed through that, that period of the last century that essentially broke up community and said, this is not the ideal. The ideal is to look after yourself, be wary of government. Ironically, government was pushing that message. Be wary of government. And look after yourself, and that is going to be the best outcome for everyone. I mean, it's a very skewed take on Adam Smith's uh, work when it comes into the capitalistic sphere. But you're right. The antidote lies with community building. But more than that, I guess the point I'm trying to make here is even those who are so committed to community, I think, 
myself included, constantly get caught in the trap of focusing and starting with what's not working. And we can really do more to bring our communities together by looking at what's worked really well. When was a time in history that our community was at its best? Mm. What was underlying that? If we want to think about creating a community cooperative that shares drills, rather than saying, wouldn't it be great to create a community cooperative that shares drills, which actually subtly goes into deficit model and says we don't have that already. Instead, you start by saying, how good did it feel when you picked up that dot, dot, dot from your neighbor and you find a circumstance where you know something worked and you build on that in order to get to the conversation about the community cooperative down the track? I think that's really powerful, just that shift in mindset too of, uh, you know, of not the the have-nots or the, the negative, but the... Yeah, the engaging with, with the positivity and the what is right and what feels good and what kind of speaks to the heart of people because I think people understand, you know, you ask somebody about their, their fondest memories and it is not when they sat alone in a room full of stuff that they bought, you know, <laughs> gently patting their, their leather lounge and, uh, you know, their, their MacBook. That is not people's fondest memories. It's people. It's connection, you know. So I think... We understand in you know deep down inside that that is where the 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 best of life is. It's just a matter of engaging with that in a way that doesn't make people feel like you said what's wrong with the world already. You know, it's it's reengaging it in a in a different kind of way. Right, and you know, there's something I I just thought of that I'd like to share. Maybe some of your listeners are more on the introverted end of the spectrum. And so maybe it's worth highlighting that community doesn't have to mean socializing with a ton of people all the time. Community might mean just connecting with your friend one-on-one or your neighbor one-on-one in more meaningful relationship. I hadn't thought of it until now, but I suspect that some people bristle at the word community if they're, if they're more introverted than extroverted and just go, I don't want that. Mm. I, but I, I suspect that those people deep down do want to feel loved and to give love And I think that can happen in various ways, including one-on-one, which for mine is very much part of community. I mean, community coming from, I think, was it commune to, uh, and then company, um, which was to break bread together. Um, I might have made a quick jump there in the the words, but I I think to commune meant to to be together, and that didn't describe necessarily a group. It could be just two people. That's right. You're actually the second guest in 24 hours to, to make that uh, that leap between oh, community and companionship <laughs> and breaking bread. So, right. Uh, there we go. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not alone. It's um it's such a, a you know a heartening and warming kind of thought too, and one that I think it's pretty universal. You know, our desire for love and and connection, even if it's you know not necessarily on a big grand scale in terms of engaging right. with the whole village. <laughs> right. <laughs> Um, well, I think that's such a, a lovely place to, to wrap up. I, again, would talk for you know another hour about this because I think what you're, you're doing and the awareness that you're bringing to the kind of world that we actually can have is so powerful and so positive. And uh, is there anything that you would like people to know before we finish up? I would, actually, and, and I hope it doesn't uh, seem as semant- uh, like I'm focusing on semantics, but... I would say that hopefully what we're bringing uh, here in this process is not the world we can have, but it's the world that we are actually having mm-hmm. because it's happening. Like the, 
all you have to Google is anything like transition towns, open source software, food sovereignty, uh, Via Campesina, Mankind Project, absolutely any of these terms and so many others show that it's happening right now. And I think it's really important for those who are struggling with their sense of hope that a, a, a world that we want is on its way is to remind yourself that it is changing right now. As we are speaking on this conversation, millions of people worldwide are driving forward the world that we want, and it's totally underway. And we'd love uh, anyone who's interested can check out our work. Um, we'd be more than happy to engage in conversations in other ways around this and look forward to, to staying up to date with the simplicity movement more generally and the slow living movement and the wonderful things that are emerging from that space. Congratulations to everyone who's doing so much in making those important decisions. Fabulous. And where can people uh, find out a little more about you and your work? Postgrowth.org. We're the Post Growth Institute. Uh, so P-O-S-T-G-R-O-T-H.org. And you can also check out freemoneyday.org or enrichlist.org. Awesome. And I'll, um, I'll include a, a link to all of those and some of the things that we've spoken about uh, today in the show notes as well. But, uh, Donnie, thank you so much for talking to us. It's, it's been fantastic, really enlightening and, uh, yeah, um, enriching. I feel, I feel more hopeful after speaking with you. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Brooke. It's been wonderful chatting. Thanks. been another episode of the slow home podcast if you enjoyed it be sure to subscribe via itunes and leave us a rating or a review thanks for listening